Good morning, everybody. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. God, you have uh, prepared the hearts of each one of us for different things and different timings. And spirit, you have a plan this morning. I know God so often I have no idea what your plan is. And then you show it to me and it's way better than my plan. So God, I just pray that that would be a realization this morning. We love you. In your name, amen. I was imagining a conversation between two people. I'm not sure what kind of conversations you have with your neighbors or friends, but I was imagining a conversation. Let's say it's taking place at about 70 A.D. Jesus had come, he had died, he had risen again, and there was this movement of this kingdom. And I was wondering about these two neighbors who one was a big believer in the Roman Empire because it was all around them, and one started talking about uh, Jesus. Because there was this common phrase at the time that Caesar is Lord, and there were symbols of Caesar's power everywhere you looked. And your town always had to be ready for a surprise visit from his people. So between two neighbors, I heard, I'm wondering like if one asked the other, so uh, who was this Jesus guy you talk about sometimes? That's kind of weird. It's like, oh, you know, he went around doing all these amazing things, loving people, standing up to those who were strong. So the neighbor's a little bit interested, and he's like, so where, where is he now? And like, well, he was killed. Well, who killed him? Well, the Romans killed him, crucified him. Hmm. So this empire that we're all in killed your leader. Kind of seems like our empire is stronger than your leader. You're like, well, he rose from the dead. <laughs> well, okay. Where, where's his temple? I mean, there's Caesar's temple. There's statues. There's things that show its power. Where's Jesus' temple? And your response is simply, it's right here. Well, who has Jesus conquered? And your response is simply, man, he just wins over your heart. That's what he came to do. See, there was a story a little bit earlier, but towards the end of Jesus' life, where he was challenged around this idea. Who is greater? The obvious kingdom that everybody was kowtowing to and, and referring to and deferring to and in fear of, or is the kingdom of God stronger? In Matthew 26, verses 16 through 22, there's a story where they went to try to trick Jesus in giving him an answer or giving him a, a, a scenario to see if they could trap him. It says this, They, the Pharisees, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. The Herodians were um, a non-religious group that were in support of Herod and the general policy of the Roman government. You see, the Roman government put up local entities to like, uh, yeah, you take care of the Jews, but you make sure you do what you say. So there's these people who actually represented the government. And then there was these Pharisees, on the other hand. They were members of an ancient Jewish sect who believed that they, they needed to strictly obey the laws. In fact, they kind of had this protection around their laws, meaning if you were called to take one Sabbath day, they took like two or three just to make sure. 
They gave double protection because their idea was the more religious we are, the more we follow the law, we're going to tap back into God's blessings so that he will return and make this right again. So these were the two people, the people who represented the empire and those who self-proclaimed to represent the kingdom of God, both went to this man on this day to challenge him on what he had to say. Teacher, they said, rabbi, even that phrase, they gave him some respect, like the things you say is of some value, but you're certainly not who you say you are. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That line is so loaded on where they're coming from. Do you catch what they're not saying? They're not saying Messiah. They're not saying anointed. They're not saying God. They are simply saying you're a good dude who has integrity and you refer to things that are true. You aren't swayed by others. Now they're just like being jerks. Like, you know, you're so strong, no one has influence over you. Because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now this gives us a backdrop of, of how Jesus grew up and what was going on in at the time. Because if Jesus said no... The people who represented Rome would charge him with treason against Rome because it had that kind of power. But if he said yes, the Pharisees would accuse him of disloyalty to the Jewish nation and the law and, and, and lose the support of the crowd. So that he's like, are you this or this? And in the brilliance of Jesus, of how he grew up and how he lived, he's like, I have more options than what you have given to me. <laughs> but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, which is kind of an unfair advantage he had. <laughs> He's like, I know the evil in people's hearts. I know I can see it and I know your evil intent. So here's my response. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and, and asked him, whose, and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. I just love how that is phrased. Came to trick. He said, there are two kingdoms. Give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. It's his money. It's his face. And on the coin, it even said, Caesar is Lord. So give to him what he asks. And make sure you're also giving to God what is God. Because just as the coin bore the image of Caesar, Jesus was referring humans bear the image of God. For that is how you were created. And to lose your way in an empire that bore the image of Caesar alone would mean that you had forfeited your soul. Because Jesus gave this teaching, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? He is turning his back on the image of which God had created him to be to embrace the image of the empire around him. 
But we are not called to totally reclose ourselves from that, but to simply say, make sure the kingdom that God has given to you to live in, you're giving to God, which is God's. When Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, he was simply drawing a very sharp distinction between two kingdoms. And those are the kingdoms that he came to bring when he was born. And the kingdom that existed on that night he entered into the world. During this time of oppression that Rome had had over the people, there was a continual longing. A longing for things to be made right. Because Rome had control over individual people as well as the masses. In fact, Luke in his description of the traditional Christmas story that we read shows that Rome had the power to make people go to places they did no longer live to simply be counted and pay taxes. You were counted to know what kind of armies could exist and you paid taxes so that others could benefit from you. In Luke 2, it says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own, own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he, long, he belonged to the house in line of David. This was a long journey, and as we talked about last week, Jesus was born in the lineage of King David. Some 14 generations later, Joseph, his father, was from that lineage. And because Rome said, you need to go to your place to register, God was using the empire at that time to fulfill the prophecy that he had talked about through Micah years before. So there are times when we say, God, you need to remove these influences from my life so that I can experience you. God says, my kingdom works differently than that. In fact, I may use that which you see as evil for my good. So Rome says, you need to travel to go register to the town. And at the same time, I'm fulfilling, fulfilling some prophecy that people are going to go, wait, this guy is truly God. You see, at the time, Rome did four things to make life in the empire endurable so people would cooperate to an extent. Though there was a heavy taxation, they would also put some of the money into the territory. So people were like, man, I'm giving a lot of money to Rome, which they were forced to do. But Rome would improve some aqueducts and improve some ways of living. So you kind of felt like, at least I'm getting something for this. But Rome saw it as a way of controlling there was relative peace in areas. It was really like whenever something rose up, they would squash it. Rome was also known to show power and have like mass crucifixions. Jesus' crucifixion was not a unique crucifixion. There is history that tells us that they may have had a hundred people on a cross at one time. So that when you walked by, you knew there was something bigger than myself going on. They had partnerships with local entities. They would fund local kingdoms like Herod and people like that. 
Then Herod in turn would build altars towards Caesar. Kind of like last week if you were here when Herod built this altar to Caesar in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus stood in front of and said, who do people say I am? There was propaganda. They had this uh, imperial theology. In fact, the Caesar at the time, his father, Julius, after he died, they said that he was deified. He became God. So then Augustus, his son, could truly say, I am the son of God. These phrases were not unique to Jesus. So you're like, wait, did they just make them up? It's one thing to say you're the son of God. It's another thing to come out the other side and show that you're the son of God. Caesar said these things and then used power to control people. Jesus said these things and then showed power to invite people in. Because of this oppressiveness for years, there was also groups of people that's important to understand of how they kind of protected themselves in the process. Because when we feel like the outside culture, whatever it might be, is bigger than us, we do certain things to kind of protect ourselves in a way. There was a group of people that, like I mentioned before, were the Pharisees. They followed the Torah extra, hoping to tap into that Old Testament God, if you will, that they could get the blessing once again. Their intention was good. Their plan led them astray, though. There was a group called the Essenes, but their plan was to pretty much withdraw altogether. They broke away from the systems of the Pharisees, and they just kind of kept to themselves. It would maybe be like the modern-day monk, where they just got quiet. They weren't fighters, but they protected that part of their heart that no longer wanted to fight. There are the Sadducees and the priests. Now, these were the official teachers of the law, and it depended on the favor, they depended on the favor of Rome to keep their position. So they really were hired by the government to be the religious leaders. And then there's the zealots. The zealots. They're not an organization, but a subculture. They were loyal to the Torah. They resisted pagan culture. And they embraced violence to achieve what they wanted. They were the fighters. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was known as a zealot. In fact, they kept calling him Simon the Zealot. Which is an amazing thing to think about. That Jesus did not just invite his disciples in to introduce this kingdom who already had it all figured out altogether. In fact, he took one of them whose, whose idea was to fight at all times. Maybe Jesus is like, it's good to have this guy on my side. I'm not sure. But at the same time, it wasn't just, if you are good enough, you can be with me. He just said, come, I will make you fishers of men. Come, I will show you the kingdom of God. But because of this control and obvious power lines were drawn and expectations were made, the Pharisees had expectations. Those who withdrew had expectations. The Sadducees had expectations. Rome just wanted everybody to behave themselves, and it was into this kind of environment Jesus was born. That Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. 
But when you are saying those kinds of things, and when you're growing up in a system that if you're not of that citizenship, you get asked this question a lot. Where are you from? Where are you going? What do you think you're going to do about this? Modern day questions might like be like, uh, what, do you, what do you want to do for a living? Now, if someone goes, I want to be the president, and you're like, oh, that's nice. I mean, it's cute when they're three, but when they're like 17, you're like, yeah, dreamer. No, I'm just kidding. I know. You can, whatever you dream, you can become. Okay, that's not true. For some of you still living under, yeah, I can dream a lot of things. I am not playing in the NBA. It's just not going to happen. You're like, I don't like that. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. But it got more intense as it went along. Because he was in this empire, because he was from a random place, they started saying, who do you think you are? Jesus, don't you know what's going on around you? And there are these options like we face today. Do I continue to follow the Jesus way of the kingdom? Or do I start to deviate to people outside of the kingdom who say, who do you think you are anyways? Listen to some of their responses that they said to Jesus. John 1, 45 through 46. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In John 7, it says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. When Jesus actually does decide to start answering these people in their questions, having the Roman Empire be all around them, and their perception of what Jesus was supposed to be, he said things like this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from, and I know where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards, and I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. They're like, oh, really? Who's with you? Well, I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Why is this so important? Jesus was born into an obscure place. The fact that we are still talking about a man born in obscurity outside of the manger, maybe in the manger, there's Christmas tests about that. Like, was he born in a manger? He might have been born and then placed in a manger. You're like, who cares? I'm just telling you. 
We don't know about what animals were around, but the man was born in obscurity to an obscure, probably teenage mother who was making claims that she had never been with a man yet was pregnant. That the Holy Spirit placed a baby inside of her, that an angel told her about it, that these people had so little power they had to travel to another place because the empire told them to. Why are we still talking about a man born in that kind of obscurity? You see, Jesus, though, was more interested in telling people what it, was, what it is like where he's from than simply dealing with what's happening right now. Rome was an impressive place. But there's another way. San Francisco is an impressive place, and there is another way. The United States is an impressive place, and there is another way. North America is an impressive You get where I'm going. That this kingdom that he brought in is not just a nicer, gentler way. It is the only kingdom with true, enduring power for eternity. So Jesus, in his interactions with people who were so controlled by the Roman government and the way of life, was interested in saying, where I'm from is different. For example, he tells a story of two people. In Luke 18, he says this, Two men went up to, to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, religious person, and another a tax collector who was working for Rome to gain more taxes. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, in case God didn't quite get it yet. I fast twice a week, even though I only need to do it once. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What Jesus is saying, where I am from, the dominant culture, the Pharisee, was upstaged by the outcast. That's what it's like where I am from. There's another story in Luke 5 that you're probably very familiar with as we reference this a lot. Four friends bought their friend who couldn't walk to Jesus. The house is too crowded. They lower him down from the roof. Luke 5, but they could not find a way to take him in because of so many people. They made a hole in the roof over where Jesus stood. They let the bed with the sick man on it down before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus starts with, your sins are forgiven before he says, I heal you, because Jesus is saying where I am from. The dominant culture of your physicality was upstaged by the heart need or anything that separates us from God. The kingdom where I am from says, man, you've got a heart condition that needs healing. I know you think your biggest need is that you can't walk, and that is a huge deal. But 
I'm telling you, just as I can see the evil intentions inside the hearts of men, I can also see the very thing that has separated you from my Father. And that's what I want to do with first, first because where I am from, that's what matters most. John 8, 14, Jesus says, I know where I came from and I know where I am going. John 16, these things I have spoken to you though, that in me you may have peace. Let's just sit on that for a sec. What would we do for peace? I don't just mean the absence of conflict, but the ability to breathe in and breathe out with nothing exterior telling us who we should be or how we should be or what we are not or what we could do if we tried hard enough. The very thing they were looking for was peace from the absence of a Roman dominant culture. And what Jesus says that I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Then he accomplishes this very thing. He says, what am I going to do with my life? I'm giving it up so that you will have life. Scripture explains it as this. He who knew no sin, perfect, became sin on our behalf so that we then would have no sin. What in the world is that about? Jesus, perfect sacrifice, came so that he would take all of the sin of the world upon himself, all of the dominant culture, all of the Roman rule, all of the how-tos and what you should be doing in your life. I'm taking that all on myself so that you are freed from it. Do you want it? It doesn't matter that the kingdom that was so impressive to the people what matters is that Jesus was inviting us into a new way of life. He then emphasized that this is now your new standing with God. After he had risen from the dead, John 20 tells us, Jesus said to this woman, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He's simply saying, you know, the tears are coming from a place of loss. And what I have done with my life fills that place. John 20, 19, the disciples were hidden behind a door after Jesus' death. And Jesus came. This is amazing. It just says Jesus came and stood among them. I mean, the door was locked. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, my God, Jesus died. Oh, hey, Jesus. It's just a freaky situation. But what he says to them is peace be with you. This is not a greeting. It's not his way of saying, hey, what's up, guys? He's simply saying it's not a personal opinion. This is a new reality. Peace be with you. He keeps saying this. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. John 20, 26, he came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He was born into this dominant culture that had certain rights if you were a citizen of that Roman culture. And if you were not, you really had no rights. And in this culture that constantly said, where are you from? Who, what are you going to do with your life? Who do you think you are? 
Jesus says, peace be with you. How loud are the voices of the culture around you in your heart today? The ones that say, who do you think you are? If your answer is anything different than I am a child of a loving king, your peace will fall short. If they say, what are you going to do with your life? If your answer is anything different, I want to fulfill all that God has created me to be because he is my heavenly father and the king of this universe. Your peace will fall short. It is impossible to find peace in the midst of a culture that demands because God does not want to be appeased. God simply wants you to follow him and give him glory for it. Could a dominant influence in a culture just see what's in front of them and miss the whole story? Yeah, that happens all the time. Could the neighbor at the very beginning who simply saw the Roman Empire have been a little short-sighted? Yeah, because we see what's, in po what's powerful in front of us and we try to fit in all the time. Who would have thought that a man born into the time of a power is still talked about today and would be celebrated during this month? Because we don't just stand in the shadow of the physical, but the, also the effects of our sin. Because the dominant culture today isn't just ethnically, and it's not just within money, and it's not just in the, the, the towers that we see or the homage that we pay. Sometimes, and most of the time, if not all of the time, the dominant thing that we are born into is that we are all born sinful people. Because sin entered into the world through one man, and therefore sin continued down the path to all people. You see, we're all born into this culture, just like Jesus in the Roman culture, that he could say all he wanted to say, but if there wasn't something that dealt with that overwhelming presence of sin in our lives, and you're like, but I'm not that bad. This isn't a level of how bad or how good we are. It's simply saying even the evidence of some impurity really is a total impurity. It permeates. So each one of us were born into an empire whenever you were born. But we were born into this empire of sin. And that is what has become the dominant culture of our time. So what will we follow, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the culture that feeds that even more? Sometimes the need simply to ask for forgiveness helps us break out of that. Sometimes the hurt that we've caused others, all of the time, it's the sin that separates us from a loving father because Jesus says where I am from, that's the biggest issue, that you're not part of the family of God. I saw this firsthand this past August. My daughter and I, many of you know, we went to Rwanda. I go to Rwanda, I've been there five or six times, and I have a really close friend there who's a pastor there. And when I go, I kind of just put myself at the mercy of whatever he wants me to do, and that's really what happens. We make all these plans, and he's like, you know all those plans we made? This is, I believe this, but also like the plans we made, yes. Well, God moved in mysterious ways, which is true. And it also means my, my friend Bracious didn't totally plan 
But it's his way of like, you know, God changes plans. And I'm like, is that because you didn't make a plan? He's like, yeah, whatever. It all works out like that way. <laughs> so we went there and I did a, a training for a couple days for like 100 pastors or so. And my daughter did children's ministry and it started out with her and like 80 kids and an interpreter. And that thing grew to like her and 450 kids. And she's like legit. And there's times the kids are going crazy and she just would go, I'm waiting. And then they'd all be quiet. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that never worked on you. How did that work? <laughs> they like doing these things in Rwanda. They call them festivals and they're basically outdoor evangelism. And I've been a part of these things in different places. I've been given the opportunity to speak before 10 to 15,000 people at some of these. And I've been given the opportunity to speak in front of very small crowds. But what remains the same is that there's really only one powerful message, to have, no matter how many people you're talking to. And it's the message of Jesus. So he planned this um, festival and we showed up. And basically there was about a couple hundred people on this side of the road. And then another couple hundred people on this side of the road. And they were separated by the road. And so there was music, music and dancing. And they had a sound system which was totally distorted. So they would scream into the microphones as they were singing. And it's just like, and they're dancing and there's joy. And I was sitting with my daughter and it was like wonderful people. And they could sing so well, but the sound was so distorted. I'm like, babe. Some people get like huge bands to sing before they speak and like it's just beautiful music. I go, this is what your dad gets. And she's like, oh, I love you, dad. So, <laughs> so then they have me go speak and I'm speaking in the middle of the road. And when I say the middle of the road, I think there's a picture. I think I'm speaking in the road and as I'm speaking, motorcycles are going by. Bicyclists are going, you see it, like I'm just in the road and people are, as I'm speaking, there's people on motorcycles like going by like two miles an hour just looking at me <laughs> as they go by. This really didn't capture the dynamic I was looking for. But in these moments, I was talking about kingdoms. And I was talking about how there are things in our lives that we wish we were better and things that we wish could improve but there's an offer that Jesus gives that he takes care of the things inside of your heart. The things you ignore all the time. You think outwardly is going to fix the inward, but you'll be amazed about how the inward fixing just sees the outward in a totally different way. Shared the gospel. The only way I know, and I know there's people in today's world that's like, we don't like to tell people what to believe. I wasn't telling anybody what to believe. I just stand behind the Bible and go, here. Or say, this is what Jesus said, and I can stand behind that and go, does anybody want to receive him? There was many people that came forward that night and received Jesus. We had this amazing, sweet time of prayer. We got back in the van afterwards, after a little while, and my friend Bracious and his family came in, and they were giddy. They were so excited. And I'm like, that was great. People accepted Christ, and they're like, there was a man who received Jesus tonight. I'm like, yeah, I saw a man. I saw lots of men. He goes, no, let me tell you a story. This was a man who grew up in this village. The village we were in was incredibly poor. Probably people would make a dollar or two a month. They lived off what they could grow or trade with each other. This man grew up in this village. He somehow got enough money to get an education. He then got a job with the mayor's office in town, and he became very powerful within at least their local government. 
He was put in charge of the books. He was the accountant, the bookkeeper. He started to embezzle. He then was partying with his embezzled money, living the high life. He never returned to his village. Finally, he got caught. He got fired. He had no place to turn. And since he was a man who turned his back on his village, the village did not want him. But he had nowhere to go, so he came home and lived with his mother in total shame. He had been living there for months. No one would talk to him. The church rejected him. He had just turned his back on so many people. But that night, he gave his life to Christ. Because I simply talked about he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that the sin you're carrying, you can be freed from. He's like, that's what I need. He came and gave his life to Christ. They were so excited. The next day, he came to church. Now, Sometimes we think our services might run long. <laughs> this baby was like a three and a half to four hour service. I preached for an hour and that was just the warm up for the service. After I preached like an hour later, they're like, Pastor Daly, have you got more stuff to say? And I'm like, ah, sure. And we are super sensitive about newcomers, and it's great. Like, we don't want to call anybody out. But my friend Bracious called this guy out and invited him up front. <laughs> and I'm sitting behind him going, what in the world is happening? <laughs> this is what he said. He said, this man was living in the kingdom of the world. Last night, he was transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his everlasting son. Church, he is our brother. He is forgiven. He is one of us. This church has to be the first place where this man knows he's forgiven and loved. Will you forgive him? And the church is like, hallelujah, which they say that for everything. But they're like, hallelujah. Amen. And then Bracious says to them, What's the proof that you'll do this? And they had this time where people stood up and said, I will do this for this man. I will do this for this man. These people are poor. They have nothing. This man wept. They sang a song. They joined together in prayer. They loved him as their own. Because where Jesus said, where I am from, the heart of that man is way more important than the appearance of the empire. And if that's where you're at this morning and you simply need, say, God, I've been living under the influence of some empire, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's just separation from God, by simply declaring and asking him into your life this morning, you can be transferred from that domain of the empire to his everlasting son. Jesus, the anointed one of God, in the physical line of King David, born in the shadow of the Roman Empire, and even in people's responses to the empire, he came to bring a new kingdom. It is here, right now, for you and for me to live in with him. The empire we're born into is one of sin and separation from God. 
And that's the empire he came to deliver you from. Even today. I invite you to stand so I can pray for you. This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.